Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. First Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come to your word that you would bless the preaching of your word. We need your reminders, we need your encouragement, we need you to uh, work in our hearts and our minds to illumine them so that we would be those who hear your word and do it. Father, we thank you for the great gift of, of your word and the great gift of your word preached. Father, I pray that we would, um, that we would be strengthened that we would be encouraged and that we would be able to walk out of here with our heads held high and our faith strong. All to your glory and the glory of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So it was, it was, as you know, the um, crucible of persecution that motivated the Apostle Peter to write his letter to the churches scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, those churches that are in modern-day Turkey, the Asia Minor. And those are the churches that were planted by the Apostle Paul. Now, when persecution came, it was clear that the temptation for Christians was to, as um, one commentator, J. Gresham Machen puts it, the temptation was to relinquish what was distinctive in their faith in order to avoid the hostility of their heathen neighbors. That's what, that's the intensity of persecution, right? You give up what's distinctive about the Christian faith so that you might please your heathen unbelieving neighbors, That's a significant temptation, right? That's why we see churches soften their theology 
or become more enlightened about their theology and go in a liberal direction because they can't stand this tension between the unbelieving world and God's people. But Scripture throughout gives encouragement to Christians to stand firm in the faith, knowing that everybody may be against you. Right? This is the constant dilemma of Christians. Go along to get along or maintain the distinctiveness of their faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ, come what may. So in connection with our modern situation, Machen wrote, well, Machen wrote this about 100 years ago. He said, we are tempted to do the same thing, to go along, to get along, because the superficial respectability of modern life has put a gloss of polite convention over the profound differences that divide the inner lives of men. We, as well as the first readers of the epistle, need to be told that this world is lost in sin. That the blood of Christ has ransomed an elect race from the city of destruction. That the high privileges of the Christian calling demand spotless purity and unswerving courage. In other words, the Apostle Peter is going to drive home, he's going to drive home the, distinctive of Christ, the distinctiveness of Christians and their doctrine and how that distinction leads to hostility from the world. There is no way around this. It is inevitable. In short form, the Apostle Paul put it this way, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's how Paul puts it. The world has always and will always operate this way. They will insist on conformity, and when, when Christians resist that conformity, they will be maligned, they will be hated. We needn't look any further than the intense hostility that comes toward Christians when they speak of distinctives like babies in the womb are babies. And marriage is between one man and one woman. And men and women are different. Go to any town council meeting, go to any county council meeting or state legislative hearing and say those words. And those who disagree with you will set aside any decorum that the space um, should, should have. And they will insult you and they will degrade you before others for, holding, for saying that men and women are different. They don't care if they have a double standard that would keep you from speaking such hateful words. They love the double standard they live in. They do not allow blasphemy right against their humanistic gods. They are passionate, passionate in support of their gods, aren't they? And we hear God's name blasphemed and just let it go. Right? They hear their gods blasphemed and they're going to tear your head off. That'd be a lesson to us. How are we to stay encouraged in this world as Christians? How, how do we stay encouraged in a context like that? In the same way Christians in every age have stayed encouraged by looking to Jesus Christ, right? By looking to his example. Unlike the soft-skinned, fat, well-dressed rulers of our day and age, Jesus Christ suffered in the flesh. It's a significant distinction between the rulers of our age and 
Jesus himself. We are, as our text says, to arm ourselves with the same purpose. Yes, suffering in the flesh. You are to arm yourselves with suffering. Seems like a paradox, doesn't it? How, how is it strength to suffer in the flesh? How in the world is that, that, that strength? Well, the Apostle Peter says that it is strength to suffer in the flesh because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for what? The will of God. Think about that. The fruit of suffering in the flesh is this. We use the balance of our time before our deaths in pursuing the will of God and not pursuing our lusts. Suffering in the flesh orients us toward pleasing God and away from pleasing ourselves. Again, when we suffer in the flesh like Jesus, like Job, like the apostles, like many of uh, our fathers in the faith before us, the temptation we face is to see our suffering as evidence of something. The temptation is to think that when we are suffering, God is against us, right? But the scriptures and the example of Jesus himself teach us differently. Suffering in this life, particularly suffering for the sake of righteousness, suffering as a result not of a, of a gimpy knee, but suffering as a result of proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ in the public square, being a witness. But suffering in this life is God's grace. It's his grace. The man who is tempted to commit homosexual sin will find that decadence, the decadence of our society is an enemy to him. Right? In other words, living in a soft and prosperous time without much suffering of any kind will not be good to man's pursuit of holiness. But being armed by suffering in the flesh as Jesus was will keep that man from living for those lusts. Difficulties and suffering keep us from sin while decadence and ease promote our sin. We all know this. We all know this and we love our ease and our decadence. Right? Think of how prosperity and ease was warned against by Moses. Here's how Moses warned Israel. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied, then watch yourself that you do not forget Yahweh who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. We forget so much of what Scripture says, don't we? 
that, that Israel, the people of God, the apple of, of God's eye would be told by him, you know, if you go after other gods, I will so quickly wipe you off the face of the earth. We forget these things. We think we've softened God. We just don't think this way. And yet here is God warning his people, and it's good. right Now clearly what the apostle Peter has in mind is suffering that comes about because of our faith. right? If you look around at verse 16, Peter says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. It is that kind of suffering because we believe in Jesus and face consequences for that faith that Peter has in mind. But any kind of suffering really, just for a moment let me talk about this, any kind of suffering has a purifying effect. Bad health. Calamities. Difficulties going on in the world. Right? Losses of job, terrorist attacks, coronavirus. All those things make us suffer. And I praise God for the suffering. And this is, this is still something that I'm trying to wrap my brain around and may do for the rest of my life. But I praise God for the suffering I went through several years ago with months of unrelenting anxiety and panic and despair. Whether that was caused by a reaction to some medication I was on or whatever the cause, God still gave me a taste of what it was like to have his grace and favor removed from me. That's, that's how I perceived it in the end. It was terror. It was terrifying. I am so scared of ever going back to that point that it, it keeps me from sin. It halts me in my tracks when I'm, I'm headed headlong into something. God gave me a taste of what it was to have that grace and favor removed. I never, never, ever want to experience that again. And, and yet it was a serious wake-up call for me. The terror has time and time again been that thing that caused me to stop and consider my ways. It has led to almost constant self-examination since that time, so that suffering that I am so scared to face again has been fruitful for me. It has been very fruitful. I don't ever want to be there again. I thank God that it was fruitful when I went through it. Now, notice that back to suffering as a Christian. Notice that persecution, there being a cost associated with following Christ, has this specific result. We are inclined by that suffering to spend our time no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. In other words, what once woke you up in the morning is no longer what wakes you up in the morning. The will of God now is what motivates us. We just we don't just go from one indulgence to the next indulgence. Our delight is the will of God. That's our delight. That's our indulgence. Right? We pour over the scriptures so that we might so that we might find ways in which we are not following the will of God. And when we find them, we delight to correct them. 
Why? Because we delight in the ways of our Heavenly Father, being sons of the Father. We, like Jesus, delight to do the will of the Father. Is there, is there great reward in it? Is there great reward in obedience? Yes. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father will enter into heaven. So that desire to be in heaven with God is not wrong-headed desire. It's the very, it is the very suffering we go through this side of glory that makes heaven so desirable. And Jesus tells us that it is those who do the will of the Father who will be there in heaven. There will be many who pay lip service to God by saying, Lord, Lord, but those who know him do his will, not just say his name. They do his will. The apostle goes on to help us put a stop to all those thoughts that make us think life is passing us on if we don't satisfy our desires. I mean, that really is an issue, isn't it? Midlife crises. Those are are when men and women regret that they were not able to indulge their lusts as much as they had hoped to in their previous years, and so they're going to do it now. So they get a new wife, they get a new car, they get a new set of golf clubs, they get a new place on the beach, etc., etc., right? But with the mind of Christ, we can, we can cease to live life as dictated by our regrets, right? You, you are not a sexual god or goddess, right? You are not a rich man, you are not respected, you are not as pretty as you once were, and you can move on, right? You can move on. Christians, particularly those who are treated as the dregs of the world, must not, really cannot envy the wicked and figure out ways to have God and split their affections with him and porn. I mean, it's just so wicked to even say it out loud, isn't it? The almighty God who created the universe has my devotion and pornography has my devotion. You cannot have God and have him in adultery or him in money or him in clout or him in worldly wise children. Rather, the time already passed is what Peter says. The time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. It's like, he, it's like the Apostle Peter had been on some American college campuses when he wrote this. The time past is sufficient for you to have been a seducer of men. Time past is sufficient for you to have been a flirt. Right? Time past is, is sufficient for you to have been a pot-smoking drunkard. Time past is is sufficient for you to have been an alcohol-imbibing drunkard, partier, the center of attention, the, the uh, the one who can wonderfully balance service to God with service to some sort of idol. The time past is sufficient. We have to get our heads wrapped around that. The time past is sufficient for you to have 
carried those out. And, which is to say, once we, once we wrap our head around that, the time past is sufficient, we can move on. We can move on into new paths and new ways. Right? There should be no vestiges of your former life, the former, man, former manner of your life and your current manner of life, if indeed you are in Christ Jesus. There should be no wistful thinking about your former manner of life, even if you lived a squeaky clean life. There should be no regrets that you did not have an opportunity to indulge your flesh. The time past is sufficient, and the time past is where those things should exist, only in the past. Unfortunately, there are many old friends and co-workers and family members who think that what you were once were is what you should be now, right? What you once were is what you should be now. You were much more fun. You were much more engaging. You, you know, you, <clears throat> you were much more lovable. When you used to drink with us, when you used to relieve yourself with a tender girl, when you used to spend time on the lusts of men, this is another difficulty that Christians face, isn't it? What we once were is what many people want us now to be. And what we want to be is simply not as pleasant to them. We used to get together and drink and laugh. Now we talk about Jesus and religion. And we get judged for being what... Uh, for what we once were, even if it is not sensuality. For some of us, our friends preferred us when we were more open-minded, right? Before, the, before our, our, our minds locked down on the Word of God and became very closed on something, right? We were open-minded. We didn't have any convictions about LGBTQ stuff, Right and, and Sundays, and we didn't have any convictions on pornography and statism and abortion and capital punishment. You know, we just, we didn't have any convictions. We then, at conversion, are hated for being too serious-minded. Loosen up. Verse 4, in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. This, dear brothers and sisters, has been the experience of all Christians throughout all time. When the old man dies, many around us grieve, but not us, not those who have the new man. We begin to hate dissipation. We begin to hate wasteful living. We begin to hate being numb to life because we have found life in Jesus Christ. We have begun to know and to study and to love the creator of all things visible and invisible. We have started life as a citizen of heaven. And though we have a passport that allows us access there, we have to live out the balance of our days in this fallen dump. Those who do not know the glories of the triune God do not even have eyes to see the dump they live in. They live the nostalgic life. 
right? The nostalgic life. But the nostalgic life is a life fixated on things that are passing away. Now that you've come to know or rather be known by God, everything is different. Nostalgia means nothing for you. You have turned 180 degrees and it's the future you live for. They malign you. It is very interesting to me that those who come to Christ are not treated as people who just choose one of many options. Which would follow the ethic of relativists, right? But rather they are hated for following Jesus Christ. I know mothers who have turned to hating their daughters because their daughters came to Christ. I know friends who have become enemies because one of them was regenerated by the Spirit, and it wasn't because the Christian went cage stage, right? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, provokes a reaction that is inordinate to an age of so-called tolerance. And it really is worth remembering this. When you came to Christ, you became toxic. You became toxic in a relativistic society just like Roman society was back in the day. You became toxic in a sense. And Jesus told us it would be this way. It shouldn't be a surprise. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? You're going to get even more maligning than Jesus got. The intensity of the response to the Christian faith is a matter of God's ordination. And dear brothers and sisters, it should be a help to you in your work with God. Too often we think that hostility toward us from man is hostility toward us from God. We, we just can't psychologically deal with rejection But this scripture teaches us that hostility toward us from man is is not what it feels like it is. In God's providence, we often suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And this has been Peter's point throughout this whole book, right? Now take heart. Take heart. God is not ignorant of your sufferings. He's ordained them. He's promised them. Jesus has said they're going to be more intense. And you will be, like the apostles, the dregs of all things. But he's not ignorant of your suffering. In fact, one of the ways we endure is to remember that God will judge every man. God will bring every man to judgment. It is the duty of Christians, at least those who think the Psalms are inspired, To rejoice in the coming judgment of God. We sing songs about God coming to destroy the wicked. We sing happy songs about God coming to destroy the wicked. We don't do it sort of ashamed and sort of, you know, we loudly proclaim God's coming judgment and that he will destroy the wicked. And we rejoice in it. And if we don't rejoice in that, then we, we are weak Christians. Right? It is the duty of Christians, at least, you know, at least those who, who love his word, to rejoice in the coming judgment of God. We are t- not to scold God, right? That scold him for rendering to each man according to his deeds and, and that he would 
he would be a God who would cast the wicked into everlasting, unending torment. Some of you even hearing that begin to scold God in your thoughts. How could a loving God eternally torment somebody? No, we praise God for that kind of justice. That justice that's going to remake the world. Right? We, we, we pause and in a still moment wonder that God has been so merciful to us, right? God's grace toward us has been amazing. Those who hate Christians may have the upper hand now. Many uh, have, you know, they may have our society's culture uh, makers singing their praises, but the time will come when they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Imagine having the world's applause for your whole life. Then at death, having God's indignation and wrath. Will the memory, will nostalgia at that moment, the memory of being on the right side of history, soothe the one who hears God saying, damned. And when those souls who live for their own lusts and not the will of God see their awkward friend that they maligned who came to faith being honored by God and welcomed into eternal rest and peace, do you think they will think they got the better deal? Hardly. So, dear brothers and sisters, keep being rejected. Keep being disliked. Keep being persecuted for your faith. Keep right on living for the will of God. Right? This is your calling as a follower of Christ. We, the church, are to preach to those who are dead so that they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God, verse 6. Some of those dead will, will pester us and desire to see us stamped out and will persecute us. Some, like Agrippa, will come close to the kingdom of God. Some, though, even after being hostile, will come alive by the work of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of that word within the, and the, the Spirit working within them. And so do not let those who react poorly be any deterrent to you at all in professing your faith in Jesus Christ. Do not let them stifle your joy. Do not let them stifle your witness. Do not let them confuse you and twist you up. You are done with childish things. You are done with worldly things so as to live the rest of your days for the will of God. So many people think they have the luxury of time. Right? And one of, the, one of the interesting things as you reflect, this happened when, when our country was attacked by heathens on 9-11. Right? And it's happening again as people stockpile toilet paper. But, but stare in the face of a, a virus that kills 30 times as bad as the flu. 
right? It's not, an, it's, it's not like anything I've faced in my lifetime. And yet, people still think they have the luxury of time. Well, I'm going to live a life of dissipation, and then at the end, I'll sober up, I'll get right with God, I'll, 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 you know, I'll live those last few months of my life praising God and reading His Scripture and going after Him. And they're cut down in a moment, in a day. They're cut down. Car drives by them and they're dead. Right? So many people think they, they have that luxury of time, time to clean up, time to change their ways, time to live for their lust, just a little more, you know, like Augustine said, make me holy, but just not yet. Live for the will of God. If you are being taught anything by this COVID-19 virus, we are being taught that we are not guaranteed any tomorrow. It's not. The, the, the time already passed is sufficient for you to have lived for yourself. Come to Christ. Come to Christ and begin living for each moment. Right? Begin living for each moment. Begin living in such a way that every breath is an opportunity to do His will. Because He's a good Father and you want to please your Father. Right? You want to praise His name. You want, you want to hear well done. Right? You don't want to do a bad job and have very little fruit for this Father. This Father has riches that He has given to you an inheritance coming to you. And you want to see at the end of that, well done. Here's these treasures that you've stored up for yourself by, by these good works you've done. Right? That's, that's, what we, that's what we need to fix our minds around in the end of this. You're going fi- to face significant fire for being a Christian. You, it's, your whole life is going to be awkward. You're going to go from awkward moment to awkward moment to awkward moment to awkward moment to family hating you to coworkers hating you to you getting fired because you're a Christian to it's going to be just awkward, 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 awkward. But trust me, God stands ready to judge the living and the dead. And when you stand before him on that day and he says, well done, All of that awkwardness, who cares? Almighty God is going to usher you into eternal Sabbath rest. And you won't be able to sin and corrupt it. There won't be this fight anymore. There won't be this choice between the lust of man and the will of God. It'll just be will of God. And it'll be glorious. And it'll be satisfying. Amen? Amen?